So welcome to 1 Corinthians today. We're going to pick up right in chapter 3 where we were last week. We're going to end a little bit early. We've got to go to a dental appointment for Miss Patty today. And so we're going to finish up about 1 o'clock. Um, okay? So I think what I'm going to do is I'm just going to open us up with prayer and plunge right in. How's that? Okay? Would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be here. It may be hot outside, but we're grateful to have air conditioning in here. We're grateful that we can take this time out of our week to, to study your word um, in ways that people just often don't. And to go through this, the, the parts that are easy, the parts that are more difficult, the parts that we find challenging or even offensive, and um, the parts that we find encouraging and heartwarming. And we pray that you will help us grasp that all of this is your gift to us, your word for us, so that we might grow to be ever truer disciples of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so today we are going to pick up where we were um, in chapter 3. Last time we um, finished up in chapter 3, verses... 16 and 17 about the fact that the church is God's temple and I'm not going to review all that if you missed that you could go listen to the final portion of last week's podcast or the video up on YouTube but the point is that the church universal is God's temple God dwells in the church universal okay God dwells in the body of Christ and God dwells in the person of the Holy Spirit. Because throughout Scripture, from beginning to end, it is the Spirit who is God's empowering presence um, with His people and working in this world and working in and among us. And later in Corinthians, we will come to the part where Paul says, we as individuals are God's temple. But we're not there yet. So, so Paul is focused on the church. He is focused on the community. He is focused on unity. He is distressed that people are feeling very puffed up and boastful and making their choices about whom they're going to follow, Paul or Apollos or Peter or whatever. And um, it's something that Paul takes very seriously. Okay? We're going to come to portions of into today that are, never, that are never in the lectionary. And the reason is because they can seem offensive, you know? But it's like Paul, there's a place in the Christian church for what you might call prophetic confrontation, which is where Paul is going to speak to people very directly, directly. We do that with people we love. We don't do it with people we don't love, and those are just being argumentative or want to stick a, stick a fist in somebody's face. Hello, welcome. Hello. Glad you're joining us today. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So, um, Paul is going to be very direct with them. And it may come across as kind of offensive, but he is, he's, he's speaking to them, I think, in ways that probably all of us need to be spoken to once in a while. My closest analogy is as a parent, the times that I have been very direct with my kids, maybe not as much as I should, um, 
but very direct with them. Why? Because, because I love them. So just, just kind of be ready for that. So why don't you go ahead, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Okay, I'm going to put up that slide. I don't know why I changed slides, but there you go. I've got them, so I change them. Okay, so let's just read back through 16 and 17. Just hear it again. I'm going to do it with the plural you. Not to be cute or funny, though I am. Okay, but so that you understand and hear Paul well, because these are plural Y-O-U's in these two verses. Not singular Y-O-U's, they're plural Y-O-U's. Don't y'all know that... See, don't y'all know that all y'all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in y'all's midst. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. So he tells them first that God dwells in the church universal, in these community of Christians. That's what he's speaking about. And then he has a word of warning for those who would... Um, seek to destroy these churches, these house churches that are fragile and new, who are struggling to, to understand and to live in God's way and, and certainly getting many things wrong. And Paul is trying to help them um, uh, find their path to God's, to God's way. Um, so, verse 18. Do not deceive yourselves, Paul writes. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, okay, oh, I get to use this slide. By the standards of this age, this is the age that the world sees itself in, the age of sin and death, right? This is the age marked by worldly wisdom and the wisdom of the philosophers and all of that thing. What Paul has been contrasting God's wisdom and the kingdom of God to this age throughout this opening section. This opening section is chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. That's the, it's a long opening to this letter before he really gets to this long list of problems that they have in Corinth. So, he says, Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, and these Corinthians do, they're Greek. They're the home of Plato and Aristotle. Epictetus and all these other great philosophers, right? Yeah, it makes them puffed up, boastful. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. Now, we've gotten three and a half chapters into this letter, and we should understand what he's talking about by now, right? Because he's doing it again here. He's contrasting the ways and wisdom of this age with the ways and wisdom of God. And in the world's eyes, Aristotle and Plato and Epictetus and all the other ones we could list, they're the way of deep wisdom, right? These deep philosophers and the world's ways of seeing things and understanding things. And for the world, um, that is not the believing world, the cross and the rest just seem like so much foolishness. 
And so Paul is contrasting the two and using all these different ways to express the fact that they need to become, now they need to become fools. They need to embrace God's way. Doesn't matter if the world thinks it looks foolish. What do you mean God got himself crucified? Sure, it seems crazy. It is kind of crazy, but it's true. But it's true. You should become fools so that you may become wise, right? You want to live in, not in this understanding of wisdom anymore, you want to live in this understanding of wisdom. You want to live in the wisdom of the kingdom. There's a dozen ways we could describe this. And he will use many more as he goes along here. Okay? For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. There are people wandering around in the darkness and they think they understand everything and they think they're oh so smart. And they're not. I've been doing Isaiah on Mondays and I just, it just keeps ringing in my head all the time. You know? And Isaiah, you can't save yourselves, God says to the Israelites in the book of Isaiah. I am God. There is no other. No one else can save you. You'll just keep wandering around in the darkness. You think you know the way through, but you don't know the way through. And of course, that's tragic, right? It's tragic to not understand that what you don't know. And so, Paul then pulls up a little quote from Job and a quote from a psalm, and he says, as it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness because they think they're so smart. I, I just told you before, I have a book on my shelf by Alistair McGrath and it's titled, Intellectuals Need God Too. Smart people need God too, right? They're not smart enough to understand all of it. They're not, they're not smart enough to understand that God so loved the world that he would give his only begotten son. They're not smart enough to understand the cross. They can't be, because it's kind of crazy, but it's true. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. The worldly wise, in this contrast. So then, Paul says, so then, no more boasting about human leaders. No more boasting about Paul, Apollos, Peter, any of them. No more boasting. There's no room for it. It takes you away from focusing on God to focusing on any of them or whoever your favorite preacher is or whoever your favorite evangelist is. No. No more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours. Okay, so in... Greco-Roman thought at this time, a popular phrase was, the wise man, the wise man has all things because the wise man can use all things. And so Paul is going to take that little maxim, that little saying, the wise man knows all things, and begin to turn it into a surprise for these Corinthians because they would certainly put themselves in the category of, yes, we're wise people. We know all things. So all things belong to us because we know all things. 
Paul says, all things are yours. And they're going, yeah, yeah. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, that's Peter, of course, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, that's a long, inclusive list of stuff, right? Yes, all these things are yours. They're all yours. And you belong to Christ. And Christ belongs to God. That's the, you know, the, you are of Christ. It would, it's just a funny translation, I think. It would be better if it said, you belong to Christ. And Christ belongs to God. So what does Paul do at the end? He says, yes, 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 yes. Why are all these things yours? Because you belong to Christ. And Christ belongs to God. The world is yours. Why? Because, because you belong to Christ. Because Christ belongs to God. It is God who has, is at the center of this whole thing. The whole thing. The whole thing. So, I don't know. Thoughts, questions? Before we move on to chapter 4. The CEB uses the word belong? That you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Good for them. Yes. Good for that little translation team. Andy? <sighs> you know, no, Peter would not have passed away. Um, the church tradition is that in this period, we're in the 50s AD, maybe 53, 54, 23, 24 years after Jesus' death, death and resurrection. The church tradition is that at some point in this period, perhaps, Paul, Peter made his way to Rome. But there really isn't anywhere you can go in the New Testament to find that. But the church tradition is that he did, and he became the leader of the church in Rome, the first pope, as it were. Okay? Um, might Peter have come through Corinth? Sure. I mean, I'm, I'm open to all kinds of things because we know only a tiny fraction. Remember, the, book of, the, the New Testament is brief. The book of Acts is brief. It's one tiny slice of what was happening in the first century. So it's, it, doesn't even, it doesn't pretend to be complete. It just tends, it wants to show you the spreading of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so there's a lot of things we don't, we, we don't really know. People argue over when Paul died. Someday we'll find out, I think. I'm going to find out because I'm going to be relentless <laughs> asking. Yes, Charlotte. No, and Plato and Aristotle are hundreds of years before Jesus, okay? The question is, did, did any of these Greek philosophers become Christian? Not to my knowledge. Now, Plato and Aristotle are long before Jesus. They're dead. Epictetus is dead. There's, there's one named Seneca from Rome who's living at this time. But no, understand, almost none of the Gentiles become Christian because it's just seemingly absurd that God would get himself crucified. What sort of God is that? 
right? So no, that by the end of the first century, there's probably, I don't know, I use, there's a sociologist of history and Christianity whose numbers I tend to use, and he said by the end of the first century, maybe 7,000 Christians across the empire. That means there's no more Christians in the Roman Empire, population 50 million in 100 AD, than there are members of St. Andrew. It grows, it, it, it grows fast in a percentage basis, but it starts so small. You know, if you grow 40% a year, it still takes, and you start with none, it takes a long time to get somewhere, but it does, right until finally by the, you know, by the time Constantine becomes a Christian, maybe 300 years after Jesus, there's maybe six million Christians in the empire because people want some of what the Christians have. And, okay, so no, we know of, we know of, uh, you know, a few leaders in the community that become followers of Christ. Or Erastus is the most notable. He's the tre city treasurer in Corinth for a while. And he is noted in here by name. There are others who could be, but we just don't know because all we have are the names we have. Okay? Anything else? Yes? Nope. Okay, y'all got to help me spot when hands go up because I get preoccupied and I'm wearing glasses and a whole thing. Okay, so so Paul's, Paul's going to take all of this, right, that he's been saying, and he says, this then, this all this stuff, this then is how you ought to regard us. These leaders. These pastor types, I'll use that word, because I, I think Paul would. Okay? Paul and Apollos and Peter and the rest, whoever they are. This then is how you ought to regard us. We are servants of Christ. And we are entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. So the word here in the Greek is a word that talks about stewardship. And, you know, stewardship is something we talk about in the church all the time with respect to money, right? And it's not a very good way to do it. Because for most of us, the only other place that we, might, that we would run into a steward is if we happen to take a cruise. <laughs> and you have a cabin steward. Otherwise, I don't know where the word is used anymore. We used to have stewardesses on airplanes, but that is in the long and distant past. So a better word to use than steward, which this, this translation takes us toward, is trustee. Because we all know what trustees are. Some of us may be trustees for our spouses or our children or whatever, where we are given something to hold in trust and we are expected to hold that responsibly, okay? And for Paul and the other preachers who are traveling throughout the Mediterranean, 
creating and founding these new colonies, these colonies of a new human race, they are entrusted with something that God has given them. And what has God given them to hold in trust and to use in trust? God has given them the mysteries. And what are those mysteries? Simply the gospel, the good news. And not more complicated than that. It's why Paul has already said twice in this opening section that when he arrives in a town, he preaches Christ and him crucified. Christ and him crucified. The good news that you are not lost in your sins. Why? Because Christ has borne your sins. Because Christ has been obedient all the way to death, even death on a cross, as in Philippians. And that's, that's it simply. It's not something that anybody would have ever figured out. That's why they use this word mystery around it. It's, it's something that somebody would have to tell you because you would never figure out that the Creator, if you were just pondering things, even with a brain as big as Plato's, and he had a big brain, he asked all the right questions. that philosophers want to ask today. He had a big brain, but he could not conceive, I think, I'm sure, that there is a personal God who created the cosmos and would then become incarnate and be born to a nobody girl, young woman, in a nobody place in the middle of nowhere, in essence, if you get my drift, right? And then this God would lay down his life for a world which would largely ignore him, had largely ignored him. I mean, it's just, we Christians, we get used to this. We grow up hearing this. Even if you're new to this, you're just, you're just surrounded and, and we, we make it tame. And it's, it doesn't seem so absurd, but it is absurd. But it's true, but it's true, but it's true, but it's true. And that mystery which God had to reveal to us is what has been entrusted to Paul and the rest. And so they go around spreading this good news, right? It's like, it's like what? It's like, okay, there's a cancer cure. It's been entrusted to Paul and the rest. And they go around the Mediterranean telling people about this cure for cancer, except the cure they're actually bringing is a cure for death, because the wages of sin is death. It's a cure for death, right? And a cure that reconciles a person with, with their maker. So, verse 1, this then is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ, and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Okay? So, any thoughts or questions around that opening verse? Because it's kind of big. Yeah, D. Apollos is, is another evangelist. And we actually meet him in the book of Acts. We, we meet him, in fact, when he's doing some work in Corinth. And, um, he, we meet a, a married couple in Acts 18 named Priscilla and Aquila who 
have fled Rome when the Jews were kicked out of Rome, including the Jewish Christians, to come and they have settled in Corinth and that's where Paul meets them. And in Corinth they meet Apollos and they realize he doesn't really understand Christian baptism. And so they take him aside and they instruct him in, in Christian baptism. So he's just, are Apollos and Paul the only evangelists working? No, because we know that in some of the places Paul goes to, there were people there before Paul. There's a Roman community, Roman community, I almost said there's a Roman community in Rome. There's a Christian community in Rome as early as at least the late 40s because these Jew, these, these, the Jewish Christians in Rome are kicked out when the Jews are kicked out of Rome in 49 AD. So, um, and Rome is a place that Paul doesn't get to until like 62 AD or so. So there's other people going around doing what Paul is doing. But for my money, those people, they're doing, they're doing God's work, but they don't have what? The, the intellectual gifts that Paul, that God has given Paul to write these letters that end up being shared among all these different churches. That's, that's probably the difference. That's why we have all of this record of Paul, because Paul wrote, and he wrote extensively, and the letters were, were taken and copied and shared. We don't have any writings of Apollos. Did he write some things? Maybe, I don't, that's impossible to say. But we know Paul did, and we know they were taken in and shared and copied and shared and copied and shared and copied and shared and copied, and shared and copied until they were seen by the Christians across um, the empire as sacred scripture. So, anything else? Yes? How much of the uh, sharing and copying of these articles that changed? Like the meaning was just totally changed from what it really meant to begin with. Okay, so the question I'm getting is how much, how much were these, ch well, let me just say, the question is how were these writings of, for example, Paul's letters changed? And how would we come to understand that? And the way that you would come to understand that is by looking across all the different kind of copies that we have coming from all the different parts of the Mediterranean and tracing down all of the different variations among those, among those letters. That's what you would do. And blessedly, blessedly, we have people who make careers of doing that. It's called textual criticism. And Bruce Metzger is one of the top textual critics that, uh, over the course of his career. It sounds so boring to me, I couldn't even begin to understand it. And of course there are variations because sometimes they are in simple mistakes. You're gonna write the word horse and you make it H-R-O-S-E instead of H-O-R-S-E and that counts as a variation, okay? Are there variations in these letters or in the Gospels that change things? Not that we have found. Let me give you an example of two things that we know, because they're actually printed in your Bible, a couple of the big ones. 
You know how the, Jesus meets the adult, the story of Jesus meeting the adulterous woman, right? Famous story. It's so Jesus, right? Jesus, he kneels down beside her and he's riding in the dirt and he says, you know, those of you without sin cast the first stone. It's, it's a favorite story of a lot of people. We know that that is not original to John's gospel because it does not appear in any of the manuscripts of John's gospel in the first century or the second century. And then it appears. And yet it is included in our gospel of John because it's used and then it's used widely and it's used in the major Greek texts that were used to create our New Testaments and most people see in it genuineness. But it's bracketed out if you opened your, your John, John's Gospel to chapter 7, I think, you would see it bracketed out and down at the bottom would be a footnote telling you, well, you know, this is not, this is not in the most ancient manuscripts. But gosh, does it have the ring of truth? does for me. You go to the end of Mark. The end of Mark ends after, I don't know, it's like almost mid-sentence it ends. <laughs> and you're going like, where's the rest? Well, we don't know. If you go to it, you'll find out that in most translations there are two endings offered you. A shorter one and a longer one. What do we know about those? Neither one is the real deal. They're not in the earliest manuscripts of Mark. They're in later ones. And they don't really have the ring of truth. They, this is where you get the snake handling and stuff like that. So what happened? My money's on this. And it's just, it's, it's just, it's just an informed guess. Scholars, of course, they will disagree about it because they disagree about everything. That the ending was just lost somewhere. Mark is, Mark is written maybe in 65 AD, and somewhere early on, the full ending was lost. And so when you come to late in the second century, people are troubled by it, and so they write some endings. There's a short one and a long one, and they try to get it to stick, and they don't really stick, other than the fact they showed up in enough manuscripts that it's still printed in our Bibles today. So Bruce Metzger says, look, there are variations in some of this. We know where they are. Um, there's other smaller ones. And if, you, if you're a footnote reader of the, trans, the translation footnotes at the bottom of your Bible, they will highlight them for you. But he says none of them affect our doctrinal claims. None of them affect the thrust of these letters. Um, they're just, because of the work of people, Christians who want to get this as close as possible to the original, we, we can have a lot of confidence that that work has paid off. Scott, yes? Can you tell a short explanation about what happened when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls? Okay, so Patty wants me to illustrate what happens when people have a high regard for the sacredness of Scripture. Okay, which is, of course, would be part of what's driving. If you're copying Paul, if, if you're willing to sit down and make a copy of Paul's letter to the Romans, it's because it's important to you. And you're going to want to get it right. 
So first, Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls come from the community of the Essenes, which was a group of Jews who in 100 years, 150 years before Jesus, moved out to the Dead Sea to be a righteous people through whom God would move to save the world. And they had a library. And they did a lot of copying. There was a, what they called a scriptorium on their, <laughs> in their property, a scriptorium. And they did a lot of copying of, and scrolls and so forth. Well, when the Romans came in to put down the Jewish revolt in the late 60s AD, they took these scrolls and they put them in clay jars and they hid them from the Romans. And they hid them in these caves that, that around Qumran. When you go, I've been to Qumran several times. When you go there, you can see on the hillside, sometimes above you and actually sometimes below, these cave openings. And that's where they hid them. And after World War II, there was a little Bedouin boy who was playing in that part of the world and he threw a stone into a cave and he heard something break. And he went and he looked and there was a jar that was broken and these scrolls come spilling out, these writings. And of course, they're kind of fragmented, right? It's been 2,000 years nearly, nearly. And so he took a couple and he went home and showed them to mama. <laughs> and mama took some back to her place. But eventually, archae um, scholars and archaeologists went around that area finding more and more of these clay jars and though the contents became the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, the most extensive scroll that they found, the most complete scroll that they found was the scroll of Isaiah which is actually kept today at the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. And so what that enabled us to do was to compare the scroll of Isaiah from about 100 years before Jesus, that's the estimated dating of that copying, to the earliest text that we had of Isaiah, which is of about 1,000 years after Jesus. So how, how accurate was that scroll kept from 100 years before Jesus until about 1,000 years after Jesus? And when the scholars went through it, they discovered and they found that they were nearly identical. Not perfect, but nearly identical. Why? Because the Jews had valued these writings so much that they developed a lot of, of protections and checks and balances. They knew the letter that began every line, the letter that ended on every line, the characters that comprised every line, and they used all of those techniques to ensure that the copies that were made, they were called the Masoretes in Judaism, that the copies that were made were accurate and being faithfully passed on one to the other and I think their work and their desire to maintain the accuracy of God's Word is what you see in the work of people like Bruce Metzger who do this incredibly boring work of a right of making sure that the texts that are used to translate 
these English Bibles you have are, are true to the original, as, as close as we can get, as close as we can get. And there are a couple of Greek texts that scholars use to translate Everybody uses the same one, or same, there's a couple, they're, a little, they're very close to one another, that they use to, to, to create these English translations. So we lose, our issues really aren't the reliability of the Greek texts text under them. Our issues have more to do with how we render them in English. That's where we're more likely to get things wrong. And that's why I tell you to use more than one translation I enjoy the message from Eugene Peterson, but it, it shouldn't be your primary study Bible because it's one man's paraphrase. And so how you bring the Greek to English is a far bigger issue for, you know, than, how, than getting the Greek right because they've done a really good job and they're always finding things. So that, that's why sometimes there are changes made in the English translations because we have learned more, found more, learned more about the Greek world, what a word meant, how to translate it, all that kind of stuff. Okay, very good. Anything else? Scott, just an add-on to that. I remember back one, uh, many years ago when you taught a class in your Sunday school class about why we can believe the Bible. And one of the takeaways from one slide that you put together was that we believe, and there's a lot of people that believe Plato and Socrates, but there aren't very many copies of that that exist today. Where there are lots of copies of the Bible, so we should have more confidence in the validity of the Bible. When it comes to ancient texts, there are very few copies of these ancient, ancient writings that when we never question them, we never question the accuracy of Plato, the, the text, the Greek text we have of Plato's Republic or something like that. And why don't we? Because it doesn't matter as much. That's the key. We have like two copies of, of Caesar's Gallic Wars, I think, dating way back that are get, that it's, it's, okay, we, we only need to get close. Nobody wants to, we only need to get close here. No, we don't want to only get close. We want to read Paul. So, we try. Anything else? Okay. Nope. The Dead Sea Scrolls consist of um, Hebrew scrolls of, that are part of the Old Testament, part of the Hebrew Bible, and a lot of writings that are not because they were a community. So they had their own writings. They had their own rules of, here's, here's the rules for leaders and all this other stuff. So there's a variety of things that aren't part of the Hebrew Bible that are also part of the Dead Sea Scrolls, but none of it is Christian, none of it is New Testament. It was this Jewish library that was hidden away when the Romans came marching in 68 AD. Very good. Okay, where are we? <laughs> oh, I'm not going to verse 3. We're going back to chapter 4, verse 1. Okay. I, yeah, 
Because you see why? Because it's all kind of, you, you've got to hold the pieces together. You've got to hold the pieces together. You don't read things in isolation. And for me, <laughs> that means I've got to constantly be returning to at least the paragraph. So Paul says, this then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. Any of you who hire a lawyer or ask a family member to be the trustee for you about something want them to be faithful, to carry out your wishes, right? Same thing in the ancient world. Verse 3, I care very little, Paul says, if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. Why, if he has a clear conscience, isn't he innocent? He can't be confident of his innocence even if his conscience is clear. Why is that? For Paul, why do you think he would write that? Because his conscience is clouded by sin. This is the great failure of our time. The great failure of our time is to acknowledge the truth of sin. That just because you feel something is right or your conscience is clear, doesn't mean it really should be. And people in our world, they just, they just don't get that. And they don't understand why things don't work out the way that they thought they would. When Lauren uh, was down at, at Perkins, they called it, uh, she did a lot on theological anthropology. That's what we're talking about. What's the anthropological statement about humans that matters so much that our consciences, our thoughts, our hearts are darkened by sin? And that makes us unreliable, unreliable when it comes to judging even things like right and wrong, which means what? That we have to turn to God to learn what is right and wrong. And how do we learn from God what is right and wrong? In the pages of Scripture. That's why scriptural authority has always been paramount, or should have always been, and should always be in the Christian church, because otherwise I don't know what you have. It's why Martin Luther would stand before King Charles V and say, look, I know y'all are mad at me. This is my paraphrase. I know y'all are mad at me. <laughs> and you want me to change everything I've said. Well, look, I'll change anything I've said. I'll take it all back, as he's pointing to his collected writings on the table behind him. He says, if we argue it out on the basis of Scripture. Ah, that's the key. That's the Christian way. It's scriptural authority is... is, is um, what is challenged so often by our, by, by culture. And that's why we have, we will often find ourselves marching to a different beat than the culture that we live in and swim in. So Paul says, my conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges. It is the Lord who judges. It is the Lord who judges. That should be written on t-shirts, passed out willy-nilly, in, in Christian churches. Christian churches are filled 
with people who are ready to pass judgment about all kinds of things. There are a lot of people who are willing to tell you who's a, who's a Christian and who isn't based on this and that. And I, of course, we can't. We don't know. We don't know the state of anybody's heart. Paul isn't even sure of the state of his heart. Right? My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Not you, he says. Not me. Not anybody. But God. The Lord judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. So what? I'm glad I have this slide up. So what is the appointed time? Right here. The return of Jesus, when all that will be left is the age to come. And the, the age of sin and death will be swept away. And it's just like the parable, which is, I keep thinking about these days. Jesus tells a parable about the weeds in the field, right? The weeds and the weed, and the, the, they've planted a field to grow wheat, and the, 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 the workers come in and say, oh my gosh, the weeds are, are growing up amongst the weeds. Should we go out and pull them? Well, the answer is no. It's not their job. It's going to be left to Jesus. Why is it going to be left to Jesus to go out and pull up the weeds? Because the workers will pull up the wrong weeds. Why will they pull up the wrong, they'll pull up the wrong plants? Because they can't discern what is truly a weed and what is truly wheat. That's God's job. It's not our job. We are not gatekeepers on the Christian faith. We are ushers. We are to proclaim what, Paul doesn't describe himself in those terms. What does he do? He says, I show up in a town, I preach Christ and Him crucified. And I try to live in God's way, and we'll soon see, he says, and I, I, I try to get people to imitate me in that living in God's way. So, all right. Verse 5, Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light... What is hidden in darkness? Remember, things are either in the light or they're in the darkness. There's no twilight. He will bring to light what is in the darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. <laughs> At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Well, I like that last line. Right? Sure, sure. You know, um, And Paul is, what's, what's he basically saying is that a lot of people in Corinth, they're making all kinds of judgments about Paul and whoever they don't like. And he said, look, all of that you have to put aside because you, you are putting yourself in the place of doing God's work. These are God's judgments to make and God will make them in God's good time. They're not yours. They're not yours. Okay, so let's go on. Now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. That's who we're talking about. So that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, don't go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over the, against the other one. 
which is where this whole letter started. Remember back in chapter one? Some of you say you're Apollos' guy or gal, and some of you say Paul, some of you say Peter's. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive, that you were not given? And if you did not receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? If you did receive it, my vision here, if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? None of us have anything to boast in Christ. This is a big point of Paul's. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. We have been saved by God's grace so that nobody can boast. Nobody can say, well, I've been saved. And I'm a, why? Because I'm a much better person. I'm a much more spiritual person than my friend or my neighbor or my brother or whatever. No. We are saved by God's grace so that nobody can boast. There is no room for boasting in this. None. Zero. Zip. What is there room for? Gratitude. That's what there's room for. Verse 8. This, this paragraph is pretty straightforward, pretty challenging to the Corinthians. This is, these are these words of prophetic confrontation. He says, and I'm going to read it with, try, I'm going to try to read in some of the sarcasm and stuff as I read it, okay? <laughs> Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have become terrain. And that, all that without us. You think you're on top of the world. You're on top of the world, aren't you? This is the, this is the prophet Amos. <laughs> oh, you've got it all, you cows of Bashan. You can, <laughs> right? You've got it all. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh. And that without us. Meaning what? Which we've been doing for three chapters, four chapters now. They don't really. How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we also might reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. Paul has already had a very hard time of it. Not only has he been beaten and left for dead and stoned, He's been ridiculed in a world in which the, the, highest, the highest good in this world is honor, and the worst is shame. He's been subjected to so much ridicule. Oh, this deeply intellectual man, learned, he's a, he, he's a Pharisee who learned at the feet of one of the leading rabbis in the first century, Gamaliel. And he's living a life of being ridiculed. It's one thing to be ridiculed by the Gentiles, but his fellow Jews ridiculing him, ignoring him, beating him, stoning him, leaving him for dead. Really? 
We are like those condemned to die in the arena. We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe. To angels as well as to human beings, everyone has seen our humiliation in the eyes of the world. We are fools for Christ, but you, you Corinthians, are so wise in Christ. Ha! You get, you get the sarcasm, right? Yes? Nod? Yes, he's being sarcastic. They're not wise in Christ. They're wise in Plato, maybe, but they're not wise in Christ. We are weak, but you, you are strong. We are, you are honored, but we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We're in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth. For whom? Christ. For whom? Christ. That is why Paul endures this. For Christ. For Christ. For the truth. The truth of how humankind can be rescued from sin and death and darkness. Don't ever lose sight of the bigger picture because we use little formulaic sayings, you know. But there's always this larger picture of this whole thing being about God saving humanity, reconciling humanity to God so that humanity can be saved from sin and death and the darkness. The cross is God's salvation. The cross is God's victory over sin and death. And so when Paul shows up in a town, what does he do? Does he preach about? I've been in the church for a long time. Does he preach about how to be a good parent? That's a good thing. I'm not, not knocking that. I've always tried to be a good parent. Does he preach about well, he preaches Christ and him crucified. That's it. That's the good news. That's the content of the good news. That's the content of the good news. Christ and him crucified because it is in Christ, in the cross, that the world is, that humanity is redeemed and that the world is saved. And that's why the trees, the hills, and the rocks all sing out. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. For whom? For Christ. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. There, it is pretty shocking to me some of the things that are happening in places that put themselves forward as, as, as Christian churches in America. Just a lot of, a lot of anger. And um, a lot of readiness to find enemies. And Paul says, when we're slandered, what do we do? We answer kindly. What does Peter say? Be prepared to defend your faith, but do it. be ready in humility and gentleness. We never defend our faith, our faith by putting a fist in somebody's face or by screaming at them with spittle coming out of our mouth, flying across them. Paul says, we have become the scum of the earth. 
the garbage of the world right up to this moment. You know, he will have a very difficult time with the Corinthians. And it will continue. 2 Corinthians 11, Paul recounts a lot of the difficulties that he has had. Um, and it's a shame. But it's not... I imagine if you could, if you could sit down with Paul at this time and said, are, are you surprised? I think he would say no. Because he understands. that God's way and the world's way are often so far apart and the good news threatens all of the power structures and assumptions about how this world works. The world turns the world upside down. Power is the cross, strikes at the cross. Absurd, but it's true. So on that note, um, because it is, you know, sometimes people think, well, that's kind of a downer. Well, no, it's not a downer. How do you know God loves you? There's really one way that you know God loves you. Not because somebody tells it to you, because you see it on the bumper of a car. You know God loves you because of the cross. The cross is the demonstration of God's love for you. That's the, that should be the only evidence you ever need for the depth of how much God loves you. So just remember that this week. And when we come back next week, we will be into chapter 4? 4? Yeah, we have a little bit more in chapter 4. And then we'll be getting into the list of issues that have been presented to Paul. But I need to pray because I've got to get my wife <laughs> to her appointment, <laughs> dental appointment. So, let's pray. We want to remember Don Barber, who is, is sick with COVID and home, and I guess I'm sure there are others. We have a number of St. Andrew people that are still struggling to get back from Europe. We want to remember Shirley Castaneda, who I found out is, some of you know Mike and Shirley. She is not only ill, she's in hospice and doesn't have long before she is what? Ushered into the presence of Christ. Ushered into the presence of Christ. So... Would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, help us to hear you well. Help us not to be frightened of prophetic confrontation. Help us to help us to hear your word. Help us to help us to respond. Help us to strive to live in your way, to embrace your wisdom and have the strength to turn away from the world's way and the world's wisdom. For we know that in you we can find what is true and right and good. Help us to be those who are ready to defend our faith, but are always going to do it with humility and gentleness and kindness. All this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay.